Our text today is long. It's uh, 32 verses. And so I'll start reading at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15, and I'll read through the end of chapter 8. Let's hear God's word. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many wicked schemes. Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. I say, keep the... King's commandments for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly." For he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I will surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked." nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. 
I said that this also is vanity. So I commended enjoyment, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry, for this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one, sleeps, one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, give wisdom, that you would open ears, that you would open minds to understand your word. We thank you, Father, for Solomon and his example, and we pray that we would be wise, that it's only as you open minds, though, that with true wisdom comes to bear. And so we pray, Lord, for you to open our minds. We ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit to change us and renew us and cause us to want to be more and more like you in all ways. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Uh, today I'm going to uh, omit the review because I think we have plenty of text to uh, keep us busy. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to omit the review most likely the next two weeks as well. Uh, Phil has been very gracious, Phil and Gary, in allowing me to finish Ecclesiastes before uh, the pulpit goes back to Phil. And so it's been condensed to four uh, messages. That's why we read so much today and next week. But I believe it will make sense. Pray God that it does. So we are returning to cruising altitude. Uh, a few weeks ago, I told you that we were covering a lot of text, and that's because we were flying high. We are returning to that height and we're going to fly high until most likely the last week. There are so many wonderful concepts that I won't develop. And so if I don't develop one that you had your heart set on, then let me know, and at some future time, Phil will do that. <laughs> so the outline today is actually quite simple. I have three points. And so the first point, and that's the reason for the outline as you have it here, this handout, the first point is that there is a fairly consistent structure to both chapter, the latter part of chapter 7 that I've read, the, the 15 verses there, and the 17 verses in chapter 8. You don't see it immediately, but with this as a guide, I believe you'll see it clearly. Uh, the, other is, or the other two points are essentially the instructions that are in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so they are instructions in graciousness and instructions in cautiousness. So those are the three points, and let's start on point one first. Uh, point one covers the content and the similarities between chapters seven and eight, and so if you have one of these, I'll be referring to it a lot for a few minutes. Uh, you can see I have five different ways that I've re uh, highlighted the text here. Let's start with the list. We have the black outline that is entitled Unfair. And as a matter of fact, Josh just spoke to that in his prayer of thanksgiving. It was wonderful. And uh, let's go ahead and read what the first one says there in 7.15. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. And then if you flip it and look for the black on the next page, I'll, I'll just do 14 for this time. I'll cover the other one later. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. 
I said that this also is vanity. So that's unfair, this unfairness that Joel, uh, that Josh uh, spoiled my thunder here with. But of course, we've been talking about unfairness in Ecclesiastes for weeks. So it comes as no surprise, and we'll talk about it again before we finish. So that's the unfairness that's present in both of these uh, portions of text. The next is the limits. And we're at verse 24 and then verse 27 on chapter 7. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it? This is speaking of a wisdom that is unattainable by man. And then in 27, here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. So in other words, he states that that's the purpose of his search, but he can't find it. The search was not successful. And then on chapter 8, in 7 and 8, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell when it will occur? No one has the power of the Spirit. No one has the power of the day of death. And then down at the end, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, even though no one's, uh, one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. So we talked about these limits before, and they're present here in both of these messages that are different from one another, but have these same huge threads that run through them. The reward and punishment. If you flip it over and you look at chapter 7, it is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. There's a promise of fulfillment here, a promise of a reward of God being with us. And then you skip down to the next one. I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her. So there's a promise of salvation, either temporal or eternal. And Josh hit that in his prayer too. And that's a theme that I'll bring up in a few minutes. On the next page, there is a little bit of green right in the middle. Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before Him. And then the punishment, again, if you flip it to seven, do not be overly righteous nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Here, God uses us to convey His own punishment. Why should you destroy yourself? And we'll get into a little bit more of that in a minute. And then we have the red, why should you die before your time, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. And on the back, you see wickedness will not deliver those that are given to it. And that, what that means is that in wickedness, it's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. It does not lead to salvation. So the wickedness that people are indulging in just lead them entirely away from God, and there is no salvation down that road. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear God. Now, instruction. This is where it's a little bit different. Everything that I've said so far right now, the portion of 7 and all of 8, just reword it slightly. But it's the exact same structure and content. They just have them in different places. But the instructions fundamentally differ from one another. And so that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time. But I want to go over these five very quickly unfair, limits, reward, punish, and instruct. And then once we get to instruct, we'll unpack it. So first, there is this uh, earthly, temporal that we're talking about, and there is this heavenly, eternal that we're talking about. It pervades Ecclesiastes. 
That's why some people are just so mystified by trying to make sense of it, because Solomon just delves in and out of the temporal and the eternal over and over again. And some people's mindset concerning Scripture says the writer of Ecclesiastes could not have known of the heavenly, therefore they don't even have the possibility of seeing the solution because they don't even think in terms of the heavenly, which is kind of silly because, I mean, Job spoke of the heavenly being with God. Abraham spoke of the heavenly being with God. I mean, there was the concept of a future beyond this world. It just wasn't as clear and developed, of course, as it is now in our day, but it was there and it was known. So, I want to share this whole concept of unfairness from a worldview that I think you can all relate to. It was in an article that I read yesterday when I was being bad and not working on the sermon. I went out to a news site and I found this article from the Wall Street Journal, and it was concerning Zimbabwe. Uh, many of you know that Mugabe had won the election a while ago, just in the last couple of months, but that the opposition was contesting it. And just this weekend, they dropped their uh, protest. They've essentially said, we cannot prove that there were irregularities, at least not enough to undo the election. So in the comments, there were only three comments, and yet I, I, I am giving, giving you all the comments. First, a woman named Paula Dowling wrote this. The only bright spot in Robert Mugabe's re-election is that he is 89. It won't be long before the evil man dies and goes to hell. And then this is by Barbara LeBay. For once, I agree with you. So they, they obviously do battle a lot on comments on Wall Street Journal articles. And from, uh, from what I later read, it appeared that this second lady, for once I agree with you, is a very conservative Christian. And so I assume then that the earlier lady is a very liberal Christian, but still referring to hell. Then there is the third fellow, right? There's always the third person. This is uh, John Gower. Except for those of us that don't believe in hell, I tend to believe he'll die and end up in the same place as Mother Teresa, Gandhi, and every other saint. The same place as Hitler, Idi Amin, and Osama bin Laden. In other words, there really is no penalty to pay for the evils these men and women commit. He'll have had a longer life than many of his victims and end up in the exact same spot. It's quite depressing to think about. So I thought, oh, that at least the guy acknowledges that his worldview is horrible. It gives him no hope. But so that points at the unfairness, though, that we feel in this world. And we, as Christians, who should know better... We know there's a score here on the earth that we keep, that we're obsessed with at times, and there's a score in heaven that God keeps that we're unaware of. It's like if you're playing a game, there's one scorekeeper, and you have to keep asking them, what's the score, where am I, that type of thing. That's God's in the heavenlies. We don't know it. We don't see it. That treasure that we're laying up in heaven is out of sight, out of mind. Probably good that it is, right? Otherwise, we'd be very proud over our little mountain of treasure, or very sad over our little mountain of treasure. But either way, it probably wouldn't lead to good things. God wants us to do all this on faith, not on sight. Therefore, we have no eyes to see into that heavenly realm. So that's, I think, the unfairness very well illustrated. The limitations. There are, again, these heavenly plans 
And uh, let me read 724. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I believe what we're talking about there is eternal wisdom, heavenly wisdom, wisdom that is beyond the capability of man to exhibit or know. Yet, in 727, we read, uh, here's what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason. See, this was within his grasp. He did get that. And if you flip to the back, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell when it will occur again? Outside of our realm, it's in the future. No one has the power over death. And then you skip down to 16 and 17, no one can know. This is all speaking of this wisdom that is beyond man's comprehension, beyond men's ability to figure out. So that's the limits of man. And now we talk to the green, the rewards for faith. And I already read them, and so... The first is, uh, he who fears God will escape them, and that's this premature death or a death based on a self-destruction. And that, of course, is uh, self-righteousness that we're talking about. Do not be overly righteous. But uh, let me see. And then the, uh, the punishments, the red, about destroying yourself, dying early, being trapped by that woman, the, the evil woman that was mentioned. Uh, and it not going well for the wicked nor having his days prolonged. And there were two examples given there that I would like to uh, illustrate, and that is in verse... Here, let me see if I'm getting ahead of myself. No. That is in verse uh, 12 and 13 of uh, chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God who fear before him. A sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged. So that's a statement that's made, right? And then look at the first line of 13. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So there is an apparent contradiction here, or at least a paradox, because in 12, it said, the sinner does evil a hundred times, and his days are prolonged. And then in 13, it says, it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days. Now, there are two possible solutions to this. One is to separate sinner from wicked. Somehow the sinner is less uh, evil and his days are prolonged. I don't buy that. I think the sinner is perhaps just as wicked as the person mentioned in 13. I believe what's at work here is a different perspective. There's the earthly perspective where there is this apparent unfairness where this sinner is living a long time yet there is this ultimate justice. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So see, we know the days continue beyond death in this world into the hereafter. It does for the believer. It does for the unbeliever. So his days will not be prolonged in the sense that he will not continue to uh, achieve all of his wishes on this earth and all of his desires without having justice be meted out to him. And then the last one is instructions. And so here is where we part ways. And let's go ahead and just stick with chapter 7 so you don't have to flip that sheet back and forth. And so uh, we'll return to 7, beginning at verse, uh, verse uh, 16 and 17. So now we begin point two of the message, and this is instructions in graciousness. Note here that it starts right after unfairness. The first verse describes the unfairness, and then the instructions 
and graciousness start. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's intended. In other words, we are most vulnerable to not being gracious when we are sensing the greatest unfairness towards us. So I believe God has placed this here for just that reason. He wants us to not act out of our sense of unfairness and injustice done to us or others. That's when He most wants to us be uh, dispensing the grace of Christ to those that are being unfair to us or others. Now, in verse 16, it says, Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Righteous and wise are not synonyms here. They're different words. They mean different things. And so what does it mean to be overly righteous? How is that even possible? How can you exceed the meter? It's like when uh, athletes say that they're giving it 110%. It's not physically possible to go beyond 100%. And so it's just a way of exaggerating. So is this a way of exaggerating that God has a maximum righteousness that He requires and there, is, there are extra points such that you can score 110 on the 100-point exam? Uh, well, you can tell by context that it's not a positive thing that Solomon is saying here. Do not be overly righteous nor be overly wise because look at the penalty. Why should you destroy yourself? So we know this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. It leads to self-destruction. So, Christ was perfectly righteous, and we are to model ourselves after Him, and so therefore He was not overly righteous. As a matter of fact, if you look at what He told His disciples, there is an example that He gives them of being overly righteous. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Was this a challenge that He was giving to His apostles? He was challenging them to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. No, of course not. He was essentially saying that they are not righteous. They say they're righteous. I'll even refer to them as righteous. But you and I know they're not because their righteousness is based on self-righteousness. It's based on them grading their own papers, so to speak. And they just erase things at will and put down the right answer and get a hundred. Well, they're cheating, and so cheaters never prosper. Now, being overly wise, I believe, is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 10 by the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read a little portion of that. In 2 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure. I believe this is an example, again, of where people think they can do what they want and redefine reality as God sees it and as God perceives it and rewards for it. It's, it's really uh, quite silly when you think about it, but these overly wise people and these overly righteous people destroy themselves. That's what the Scripture implies. So now, why 
would this lead to self-destruction, it's because it's leading away from God. It's, it's a form of righteousness that exists apart from God. It's a form of wisdom that exists apart from God. Therefore, you're just walking in the totally wrong direction. You're walking down that wide road leading to destruction. And so, if you never come to your senses like the prodigal son and get off that road, you are destroyed. They're, they say, essentially, they do not need God, just as the scribes and Pharisees did with Christ. They destroyed Him because they felt they did not need Him. They did not need the righteousness that was being offered to them from God. Now, in verse 17, do not be overly wicked nor be foolish. I think on the face of it, this verse might make more sense except for the overly wicked part. Does that mean I can be a little wicked? Just how much wickedness are we allowed here? Uh, yet, I think I can explain why the word overly is used to modify wicked but not foolish. Let me begin with foolishness. Foolishness uh, often leads to death for people on this earth. Uh, some of you might have seen this Facebook post in recent days where there is a white car that's smashed up under a tractor-trailer rig. And the brief ex explanation says that this driver had been texting. And they know that because they found the, the phone in his hand, but they found his head in the back seat of his car. So he was foolish. Foolishness cost him his life. And the sad thing is that there isn't a person in this room that hasn't at some point done something foolish, F frankly, that could have probably gotten you or others killed. Foolishness is like that. There, there is no redo in some examples of foolishness. Uh, a few years ago, a couple years ago, there was a uh, young man driving south on 29, and they went through a construction zone, but he was drunk like crazy, and it was in the morning. And He went right across where he's supposed to zigzag and plowed right into four motorcyclists, killed them all, and he went to prison. And so, you know, foolishness leads to stuff like that. It just leads to early deaths. You know, I have a brother that died an early death, and it was foolishness. He just got on his motorcycle about midnight one night, and he and the girl that he took on for the ride, they died. He was just accelerating way beyond what he should have been under the influence, so he died. Foolishness leads to death. But the overly wicked, wicked people are not usually foolish. Wicked people, the successful wicked people, the people like that run criminal organizations, they're typically very shrewd, very hardworking. They're not lazy at all. And they, and they uh, essentially gain the fruits of their labors by being such hardworking, immoral people. But to be overly wicked like that also leads to destruction. Uh, people that are overly wicked are obviously violent, and violence leads to death. The world that they live in, they've chosen to live in, often leads to premature death. And uh, remember what Jesus told Peter in the garden, Peter, sheathe your sword. He who takes up the sword will die by the sword. So he didn't want Peter to attempt to advance the kingdom of heaven using force like that, like, frankly, the uh, Muslims do. That's not the Christian way. So let's go on to verse 20 to 22 in chapter 7, and I'll read that. We're again in the instruction part of graciousness. 
For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Now, this first sentence is one of those sentences. It's kind of like when you look at a portrait and it looks like the eyes follow you. Or you look at a picture one way and then suddenly you can see it and it looks like something else. This sentence can be taken in two ways, at least the way the New King James renders it. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Let me read it in one of two ways. There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. You see what I declared there? I declared there to be no just man on earth. But let me read it a second way. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. You see, now I'm saying that there are just men on earth, and yet they sin. It can be taken one way or the other way. And what's interesting, especially with this sentence, is the Bible does take it in both ways in different spots. So see, we're referring to two different forms of justice, justification. You're referring to this relative earthly justification with people who are attempting to live moral lives, and then you're dealing with the the standard of righteousness that only Christ could meet. So the question is, which one are we talking about here? Psalm 14, where no one is declared to be righteous, none, no, not one, that's the standard of righteousness required to get into heaven. But yet the standard here, I believe, is the lesser one. This is speaking of the relative justice that we ourselves can refer to. That's like, in some ways, we are not sinners. Scripture does not refer to us as sinners because sinners are said to go to hell. But yet in other uh, instances, Scripture does still refer to us as sinners. And so you're just speaking of the, the, over here, the lost, those that sin as a lifestyle and have never known Christ, and over here, those that are saved and yet still sin. So again, it's just two ways of viewing the same term. It's just a, in the dictionary, you'd have definition A, definition B. So, your own heart has known that you have done these things. That's what he goes on to say in verse 22. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Do not take to heart everything people say. I remember the first time, Ecclesiastes was probably one of the books that I most enjoyed finding in the Bible. It was puzzling, but yet there were so many gems in it. I mean, Proverbs, obviously, yes, too, but Ecclesiastes was a little different. It was kind of enigmatic. And so I remember reading this, and I thought, oh, that is so true. I am so quick to judge other people, and yet when I do take that same measure, again, in our worship service, in the words, we we talked about being uh, measured against. The measure we use against others, it will be used against us. So we want to use God's measure. We want to use the right measure. And so when our own heart convicts us that we have been hard on others, and we would not want them to know our hard words against them. So therefore, we need to practice forgiveness. So see, this is that graciousness that we should just, it should just be natural and habitual to us as Christians. If it's not, we're failing to do what it is that we need to do. And 
I had uh, already in here from Matthew 7, 3 about Jesus saying, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? And we had it in our text today. So, there are several things in chapter 7 that I'm not going to cover. For instance, there is what I already brought up about the wisdom, the comparison of wisdom in verse uh, 23. I'll talk about that in a little bit when I cover it more in more depth under chapter 8. There's also, also this provocative statement at the end of verse 28, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among these I have not found. Now, we men might be thinking, oh, you know, we're winners. Yes, 0.1% winners, yes. And, and I think that Solomon picked the number a thousand. How many wives and concubines did he have? Collectively, a thousand. And we don't hear about his wives, none of them. All we hear about is Abigail and Bathsheba of David's as being wise. So maybe, maybe out of a thousand women, Solomon didn't have one that he valued the wisdom of. I don't know. But Scripture doesn't seem to, unless I missed it. I, I don't know. But I don't see that he looks to one of his wives as having given him great counsel at any point. So I just think maybe this is his own experience. But there I go talking about it. I was going to say I wasn't going to. Um, and then in verse 29, truly only this I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many wicked schemes. This is, of course, a good proof text for people when you're speaking to them of original uh, sin and original righteousness. You speak to them about this. Oh, no, God made man upright. It is man that has persisted in this fall into this evil world. So these are things we're not going to develop. I'm not going to talk about them again, I don't think, except the wisdom that comes up. Now, point three, we're going to talk about instructions in cautiousness. And so you can flip your page to uh, chapter eight. Now, I only highlighted verses two, three, and 15 as being instructions, I'm actually not even going to talk about 15. We don't have time to get to that. And as a matter of fact, I covered that, I think, fairly well in one of the earlier messages, maybe the first. But starting at verse 2, we will explore and develop through verse 9. Who is like a wise man? So now let's begin with these rhetorical questions in verse 1. Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing. I said I'd talk about wisdom in the previous uh, chapter, and I will now. 723 reads, all this I have proved by wisdom. So he begins with a positive statement. I have proved what I've just stated by wisdom. Then he says this, I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. So he used wisdom to demonstrate, to proof what he'd said, but now he's saying, I want to be wise, but I'm not wise. So you see, there's an enigma there again. He's talking about two types of wisdom, the earthly wisdom that God has given man the capacity to absorb and to receive directly from his hand, by the way, and I talked about that last week, wisdom comes directly from God. It isn't like other things where we might think we can scrape it up. It, it, wisdom comes so much more directly from the hand of God, and he gives or withholds based on his own will. But there is a sense in which there is this wisdom that is unattainable by us. And so he's beginning with a, a statement to, to advocate caution. Who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? There are aspects of wisdom that people will try to say they can master that God tells us, no, they cannot master that. I'm the master of that alone. 
and we're going to build on that later. So let's cover the instructions in 2 and 3. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. There are three imperatives here. There are three statements by which he's directing us. He says, keep the king's commandment. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. I believe this first one, keep the king's commandment. This is all timeless wisdom from Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked this earth. So we are to obey our leaders because it's what God would have us to do. He says, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Again, what uh, Phil had alluded to in our communion meditation, all of the things have to be done for the right motive. If we seek marital counseling only to stop the pain, to stop the crazy cycle, that's not enough for God. He wants us to seek to glorify Him. That's why we want peace in our marriage, because we want to be models of that for others. It's not me selfishly wanting my way, selfishly wanting to be happy. It's about ultimately glorifying God. So in the same sense here, our obedience as Christian citizens reflects upon our God, and our God takes this very seriously. He wants us to be good citizens. To the degree that it is possible, He wants us to be good citizens for the sake of your oath to God. And of course, uh, Paul develops this in Romans 13. But to what extent does this admonition that Solomon gives us bind us? To what extent are we to obey the rulers and authorities that God has placed over us? That's the question. That's the difficult question. In the 1500s and the 1600s, Europe really dealt extensively with this question. Many people died for being on what government authorities considered the wrong side of the answer to the question. Uh, Thomas Hobbes wrote this book, Leviathan, in 1651, in which he defended the divine right of kings. In other words, the premise is no earthly king answers to any earthly authority. All they answer to is God. And so, therefore, he has divine sanction to do whatever it is he wants to do, even if it's evil. You have no right to oppose him because God has him in that position of authority. Therefore, only God can remove him from that position of authority. I think I've fairly stated what the divine right of kings was. Now, I'm going to go on to another topic. We'll get back to that. The second one, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Now, this phrase is obviously a euphemism for anger and a breaking of fellowship or a breaking of the loyalties that you have towards your earthly authorities. And so, Solomon tells us to not abandon our earthly authorities' loyalties hastily. Be cautious when you're doing this. Uh, I love Gladiator. I love the movie Gladiator. And so, there's a perfect example here. Uh, early in the movie, he goes to Caesar. Caesar tells Maximus, the warrior, that he's going to make him Caesar instead of his son, who deserves it. He says, my son is immoral. I can't make him the leader of Rome. Then Maximus goes off to absorb this information. The son comes in, and the father tells the son. The son then smothers the father to death, 
oh, my dad has died. It's so sad. I guess I'm Caesar now. I have to take on this responsibility. So everybody, of course, assumes that this is what's going to happen, except Maximus, because he knows what was told. So then the new Caesar comes and extends his hand to Maximus, and what does Maximus do? He turns away. He turns away from Caesar extending, the new Caesar extending his hand of fellowship, hands of friendship. And then what do they do? They take Maximus and they take him out in the woods to execute him because he's just defied the authority. In other words, defiance of authority comes at a very severe price in certain circumstances. And that was an excellent example of it. I have a, an example that's closer to home, not quite as tragic, although I'm not the person that did this. Just a few weeks ago at work, a fellow who I know, an acquaintance, I've known him for, I don't know, I guess maybe eight years, seven or eight years, um, I heard from someone that he had quit in a huff. And I thought, wow, really? And so I, he's in a different organization, and so I didn't pursue that. That was a Friday. But the following Monday, I went to his direct boss because that man I've known for even longer. I've known him for probably 14 years. And I just said, is this true? Did this happen? And he said, yeah, yeah, it did. He came in here and tossed his badge down and left. And now, I like both of these guys. And so I said, well, is there any chance that he'll come back? He won't get that chance. There was no way that guy was going to be offered his job back. He'd quit in a huff, tossed his badge down on the desk and left, left this fellow with a bunch more work because he reported directly to him, and pressures are on, of course. That's probably partly why he left. But repercussions come from defying authority like this, from hastily turning your back on an authority that has power. And so I'm sad for this man that left. I, I really don't think it was wise what he did. Even if he had to leave... He could have left better, in a better fashion. He could have left a better witness. I believe he came to the Lord in recent years. And so that's what makes me really worry about this fellow. But uh, yet, Solomon addresses our question, to what extent, remember, to what extent does this admonition to obey our leaders bind us? And I believe he addresses it in the next portion. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. So it's a given that if you're going to stand up against authority, you better be in the right, or you're going to die needlessly. Even, even God won't reward you for having stood up for something that's evil. So you better be sure. You better be careful. What, where'd you get this data that you're making this uh, action, that you're basing this action on? Is that data trustworthy? All of these questions need to be asked. If we take a stand, then, it must be the right one. I believe that's implied in this statement. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. In other words, if you're going to take a stand, it better be a good thing you're taking a stand for. You should have no doubt in your mind. Now, too, it's not good enough to be against something. You must be for something. There are many people who vote against things march against things, and yet there is no alternative. There is nothing to beat it with. I love Gary North's phrase, you, must, you cannot beat something with nothing. You must have something to beat it with. 
So when you're choosing to oppose authority for various reasons, you have to have that in the back of your mind. What am I for? It's not just that I'm against this, I'm for something else. I believe that's why conservatives are just failing miserably in our nation, because they're not for anything anymore. All they are is against the liberals. And so they can't present a coherent argument for what it is that they want. So, what can happen if you do not understand the consequences of your actions, you're against this, but you're not necessarily for something else, it could just be out of the frying pan into the fire. It could get worse. Look at what's happened with this uh, Muslim spring. I mean, for many of these citizens that were probably out there marching and protesting, it's out of the frying pan into the fire for them. They thought they were getting something different than what they're really getting. In Venezuela, you vote in a guy like Chavez. You, you look what you get, you know? And so there are consequences that come for us not knowing clearly what it is that we're for and yet only wanting change. Change is not always good. Oftentimes it's very bad. So now clear instruction has been given. And, and for, another example of this, I think, is uh, this phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Oh, yeah, until the enemy is vanquished, and then they probably become your enemy the very next day. That's why uh, so many advocated uh, to uh, uh, Truman that we just attack Russia right at the end of the Second World War, because our friendship is rather weak. Yet, it didn't happen, and then we had that Cold War forever. Okay, so now, clear instruction was given, right? We had this verse 2 and 3. I've just walked through what those instructions are. Now, let's see it out. Let's, let's basically uh, follow Solomon's uh, advice that I believe follows on the heels of his instruction. Verse 4, where the word of a king is, there is power, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Now, in a traditional monarchy... All of the authority rests in that king. And this is obviously a traditional monarchy. It's from forever ago. And so it was really not until the nation states, the rise of the nation states in the uh, second millennium of uh, A.D. that we began to see powers eroding from, away from the king, being taken away and given to, like a parliament or something like that. But so even though the form of government may be different, the principles still apply. Where the word of a king is, there is power. Who may say to him, what are you doing? But now you might not have just one person. You have a whole body of people. The power is still there. The authority structure is still there. And they still are either doing good or evil. But the advice still applies, even though the authority structure itself is distributed across multiple people. Think of it like this. Think of a monarchy as being a pine tree. A pine tree grows out of the ground, and you see the trunk go all the way to the tippy top, and then there are these little branches that come out. That's a monarchy. But think of our democratic republic as a deciduous tree, where you've got a trunk coming up, but then it all disappears into the many, many trunks and branches and limbs. That's the power in a democratic republic. It's all getting distributed across all these different people. Now, at the trunk, you still have those big branches of government, like the, all the three-letter acronyms that 
that our pastor's been writing about the last few, few weeks. But they're all in there. They're all in there. There are all these many arms that reach up through those trees. So let's go on to verse 5. I, I just wanted to have you have a, a picture of this. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. So we silent lemmings are safe for now. There's safety in, in, in silence. You just don't say anything. You keep low. If you're a soldier, you don't get above the horizon. You don't allow the enemy to see your profile on a top. Boom, boom, boom. Picking, snipers picking you off. You don't want to get picked off, and so you lay low. At work uh, years ago when they implemented the sexual orientation wording, that's what most of my Christian friends did. I talked to them about it. I'm like, are you comfortable with this wording? Oh, I just sign that every year. Who cares what it says? I opposed it, and it nearly cost me my job. And every year I still give them like a three-page document that says why I opposed the words sexual orientation be integrated into the document I have to sign every year that says I'm going to be good, I'm going to behave. But, you know, when you're silent, when you just go along, you're nobody's problem. But the instant you start voicing opposition, you become everybody's problem. And they don't like problems. Bureaucrats just want to deal with problems like we deal with little bugs. So, a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. That's the latter part of verse 5. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. There's a lot being said in these sentences here. Solomon did not advocate a divine right of kings. He didn't. He exercised authority like no other in his land, and yet he recognized that there is a time and a place for authority to be opposed. He knew that evil could reside at the highest levels in a land and that it would have to be opposed. But be cautious. As king, he knew the power he wielded. He had the power of life or death over every person in his land and many outside of his land because Israel was so powerful in that day. But yet, there is a time for every purpose under heaven. So, I told you already that my friend at work, my acquaintance, who quit his job hastily, there was no time for him to come back. He'd acted hastily. He would not get that chance. So we must be wise in when we exercise this responsibility that we have to oppose authority. How will we oppose it? Why will we oppose it? When will we oppose it? All of these many questions. And verse 7, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? It's no coincidence that this line comes right after, because for every matter there is a time in judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has the power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Man cannot foretell the future apart from God right? The future is all God's realm. He had prophets in the old times that he would tell, you go tell them this or this is going to happen. They're prophets, yes. They foretell the future, yes. 
from God's ears, from His mouth to their mouth. And so, they had no power on their own. Man does not have that ability. It's wisdom that's beyond us, as was mentioned both in chapter 7 and 8. Now, why would some people want to attempt to invoke that type of wisdom, that type of power, to get you to believe them? I know, I know this is going to happen tomorrow, so therefore, you should come help me today, right? So, some people will attempt to convince you that they know the future. Maybe they do. You should ask for their bona fides then. How do you know the future? How do you know this is going to happen? So then you have to test them. What is it that they're really telling you? What is it that they really want? What are they for? So I would urge you to assess them, not just based on that information they're sharing with you, but also on their character. You don't want to put your stock, invest your life in a person that you don't trust. So you must trust such people if you're going to walk down the road of rebellion in their wake. God is the ultimate authority over the earth, and all of our loyalties must always be first and foremost to Him, not to any earthly authority that may attempt to operate apart from God. Again, in verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Now, what's interesting about this is that Solomon is speaking of what he himself experienced. Whether before or later, he experienced it. He had two forms of this. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. In Ecclesiastes 7, 7, we read, and I didn't have it in today, it was in last week's message, uh, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. Remember I told you that the, the wise man is being destroyed by his oppression of others, and Solomon did that. Solomon oppressed others, therefore he suffered for it. I believe God took some of his wisdom away from Solomon because he was in rebellion. And so Solomon here says it, he rules over other men to his own hurt. He oppressed them, he lost his wisdom, he's suffering harm from that. And another is rebellion. He himself here is, in a sense, advocating that there is a time for rebellion when the authority cannot be reasoned with, when it has departed from what its lawful responsibilities are. And again, that ruler will suffer hurt, hurt and harm should the rebellion succeed. Now, with Solomon, it didn't occur to him, but it occurred for his son Rehoboam. Rehoboam lost 10 of the 12 tribes like that through his own arrogance, an arrogance that Solomon, his father, had not dealt with. So Rehoboam was foolish, and Solomon had allowed him to grow up foolishly. So in God's world, in God's time, tyranny is overthrown. We just must be wise when the opportunities avail themselves for this. Is it so bad that rebellion is the best option? God uses human agents. We know this. He did it for the founding of this nation. He will use human agents to accomplish His will in overthrowing tyranny. And He will use us if and when the time comes. But again, we are to exercise 
caution and never do such things in haste. I believe the heart of this text is in verse 5. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. As Christians on this earth, remember last week I said embrace limitations. Those are your limitations and the limitations of others. We can't hold other people to a higher standard than we ourselves know that we should be held to. So we all must tolerate a fairly healthy dose of sin and error in this world. We can't pursue perfection. That leads to destruction. That is what the humanists pursue. They pursue perfection. It leads to their destruction as well as ours. But we ourselves must not pursue that. And so we must tolerate a lot of error in our government. We must do this for God's sake because it's God that will establish the time and the judgment that falls upon the authorities of this land. We want to make sure we don't prematurely step out in an act of reckless faith, an act of self-destruction in order to do something before God wants us to do it. So now, this message was involved, but let me recap. Be gracious towards others because you are a sinner too. And be cautious opposing rulers because they do not carry a ceremonial sword. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word, Your wisdom. We thank You for the caution that Solomon advises. And yet, Lord, we thank You that You alone rule in the heavens above and You alone rule on the earth beneath. Uh, you do give it to whomever You will. You raise up rebels when it is appropriate. And so we pray, Father, for wisdom. May You uh, always uh, see us and find us as willing and faithful servants, willing to do Your will and to serve our earthly authorities uh, as You have called us to do, and yet to oppose them should You call us to do that as well. And yet we pray, Lord, that You would grant us wisdom and knowledge and the power to discern the one from the other. Be with us now, we pray, and in the week ahead, in Christ's name, amen.